for The Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. I think that life consists of improvisation. Anybody living in family life will know that it's a perpetual uh, improvisation. In a loving relationship, it's always improvisation. But I love the whole image of jazz, basically, because the thing is, it, you're given a tune, an old tune, just your, your lifetime. It, it, you're born, you die, and it ends. It's the same for all of us. But think of the endless rifts which we can manage in between. It, it seems to me to be a picture of how we live, how our lives evolve through this improvisation. I came more and more to think that the gospel is actually an encouragement to improvise in the spirit on the life of Jesus. There's this lovely sense uh, of being invited to be led into more truth, being invited to do more things and endlessly be imaginatively improvising on the sort of person and the sort of words and actions of Jesus. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Poetry is hard to read, hard to define, hard to understand, hard to pin down, hard to evaluate. And that's what I love about it. Like life, it often defies simplistic description or interpretation. Jazz offers the same. The immediate improvised communal response to the shackles and strictures that dampen human flourishing. Jazz was born out of great pain and suffering and the evils of slavery and oppression of black folks, but exults as a free expression of human agency. And here's where you get that connection between jazz and poetry. The Greek word poesis, the word that gives birth to poetry, means to make. Philosophically, this is present in Plato and Aristotle, all the way up to Martin Heidegger. Life, like poetry and jazz, is perhaps at its most beautiful when it departs from the rigid cycle of birth and death to improvise and bring something into being which wasn't there before. There is a profound, ecstatic meaning in that poetic act of letting go, saying yes, finding joy in being, and then bringing something new into the world. So jazz, improvisation, and a quote, syncopated piece that exists in mutual, interwoven, historical dialogue between the individuals of our pluralized world. This is just one way of describing the magisterial poetry of Michal Oshiel in his epic Five Quintets. Today on the show, Drew Collins hosts Irish poet Michal Oshiel and Cambridge theologian David Ford. The two have been friends for over 50 years. Each acts as the other's first reader. And their work and their relationship depict the conversation between poetry and theology that can result in the kind of wisdom that riffs on life, imagines that syncopated peace with God and humanity, and revels in the glory of being. Enjoy. David Ford and Michal O'Shiel, thank you so much for joining us. Very good to be with you, Drew. Hello, and nice to be here too. 
It's so wonderful to be with you both. Michal, I was hoping we could get started um, right away with a reading from your most recent book of poems, The Five Quintets. I'm just going to read you the epigraph, which is pointing to the different directions the five quintets take. So we, we can talk about that afterwards, but let me just first read the epigraph. Be with me, Madame Jazz, I urge you now. Riff in me so I can conjure how you breathe on us more than we dare allow. In words and hues and tones, please, Madam Blow, play in me the grace to know how in your complex glory we let go. Show how an open hand is worry-free. Spark again your love's economy, your generous first words spoken, let there be. Enhance our trust in hard-earned betterment Humbler world we may in turn augment in long adagios of increment. While marvelling at your choreography, stars and quarks beyond our mastery, we still explore to praise your mystery. Although each sacred book's a lip-read score, improvising there is always more. You jazz on what's our own and our rapport. Each solo and ensemble of a piece, grooves and tempos shifting without cease, we flourish in a syncopated peace. In all our imperfections, we advance, trusting in creation's free-willed chance. Sweet Madame Jazz, in you we are the dance. Wonderful. You mentioned that the epigraph anticipates the structure of the poem itself and the contents of the poem. But I was wondering if before we get to that, you might talk a little bit about this figure of Madame Jazz. Just say a little bit more about who she is or what she represents. Well, clearly Madame Jazz, who has featured throughout all of my work, is a kind of metaphor which I wouldn't wish to tie absolutely down with any sort of easy equation and Madame Jazz, for me, suggests the great force, the breath of life, the marvellous improvisation of living, which keeps us dancing. I think that's probably the simplest answer I can give. Improvisation is not something that people, I think, generally associate with poetry, but it's such an important theme in your work. Well, I think that life consists of improvisation. We're given these stories, but we have to, in each context as life moves on, keep improvising on them. Anybody living in family life will know that it's a perpetual uh, improvisation. In a loving relationship, it's always improvisation. But I love the whole image of jazz, basically, because the thing is, it, you're given a tune, an old tune, just your, your lifetime. It, it, you're born, you die, and it ends. It's the same for all of us. But think of the endless riffs which we can manage in between. And I also love the idea of improvisation connected with jazz because it's also um, involved with suffering. Think that jazz came out of the exuberance of, of a people who survived slavery. Um, and it reminds me always, too, that you think of other musics with that sort of exuberance, that improvisational exuberance. Think of Cayley music, which probably came out of the Irish famine. Or think of klezmer music, for instance, coming out of the Stettlich of Eastern Europe and so forth. So all of that it, it seems to me to be a picture of how we live, how our lives evolve through this improvisation. Yeah, that reminds me of, a st I, I once heard Herbie Hancock 
give an interview about his time in Miles Davis his, in his Bitches Brew Band. And he, he talked about this here playing show. It was one of his first shows and he was playing um, a solo and he played this sour note early on in his solo and he stopped. He really, you know, it was out of key. It was the wrong note. And he said, he looked at Miles Davis who paused, cocked his head for a second and then played a line, an improvisational line that made that sour note fit. I had a friend who was uh, a jazz musician, and he used to say to me, when somebody set off on a riff, if you were really listening, you could anticipate where he was going almost. So, yeah, and, but it's also, I, I was thinking about the way that, that your connection between improvisation and suffering, and this way of looking at things that are wrong and trying to put them in perspective. Yes, the dissonance. David, Madame Jazz features very prominently in your work as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why, why Madame Jazz is so important to you as well. I love jazz, of course. So that's the first thing. I mean, just over the last few weeks, I've been playing uh, several times over uh, A Love Supreme, John Coltrane's great recording and just savouring that again. But I'm a classicist by training, Greek and Latin classics. And uh, so I appreciate the muse dimension of, of Madame Jazz. But one of the other analogies is, of course, as Michal suggested in mentioning John's Gospel, I've been spending the last 20 years on a commentary of John's Gospel. So it's about to come out, thank goodness. But in doing that Gospel, I came more and more to think that the gospel is actually an encouragement to improvise in the spirit on the life of Jesus, so the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That, in other words, the, the spirit, there's more on the spirit in John than any of the other gospels. There's this lovely sense uh, of being invited to be led into more truth, being invited to do more things and endlessly be imaginatively improvising on the sort of person and the sort of words and actions of Jesus. Yeah. So there's a sort of a temporal component to this sort of jazz and improvisation is what I'm hearing from both of you in that it's sort of involved in past, present and future. Michal, I, w I wonder if you might say a little bit more about, you were talking about jazz as a sort of posture of attentiveness and of listening and both of the need for and the freedom of the search for meaning. Each canto of the five quintets is dedicated to a specific discipline, the arts, economics, politics, sciences. And then the fifth is, I suppose, philosophy and theology? Well, philosophy, theology, meaning, perhaps, meaning. finding meaning. Yes. So could you say a little bit more about how this epigraph, the sort of early invocation of Madame Jazz shapes the way you hope readers will engage with this epic poem? Like all prologues, it, it was written late because then you knew what you had done. Often people think you start with the forward, you usually end with a forward, as you know yourself. Uh, and so it was a way of pointing a little bit or suggesting how you might read each of the quintets. In the case of, of the first one, Making, which is what I call the arts, it's really an appeal in words, in painting, in music, to try and do something to reveal the complex glory of God and of creation. The second one, which is economics, which I call dealing, uh, I speak here of pointing people towards the idea of the open-handedness, which combines generosity and justice as the essentials in an economic attitude. Following that then, in terms of politics, which I call steering. Here, it's really an appeal, I think, not to look for an approach with a tabula rasa, but rather starting always from where we are and proceeding 
to make the world a little less imperfect and proceeding with fortitude and patience. The fourth quintet then, which is finding, which David very kindly was adverting to there a minute ago, it's not that we don't want to continue to explore the wondrous world, but to explore it with perhaps a newfound humility to know that we will never master everything. It's quite obvious to us that the once we move into the subatomic world, into the whole world of probability and so forth, and it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and we know we will never get to the bottom of it, but still the joy and the humility of this wondrous search. And finally, the fifth quintet, which, as you said, it's in conversation with the philosophers and, and the theologians over the last 400 years. But here, I think the appeal in the um, epigraph is to direct people towards the idea of an acceptance of both the religious and a secular world, but also with different traditions, which we can share and in sharing, go deeper into the improvisation of our own tradition, but also enriching other traditions. So I, I think that's what I have tried to uh, encapsulate in the epigraph to the five quintets. Could I put a footnote in there, Drew, that it really interests me that the stanza in that epigraph that says, although each sacred book is a lip-read score, improvising, there is always more. Uh, you jazz on what's our own and our rapport. And I, I think I'm right in saying that was partly inspired by the practice of scriptural reasoning, which we've all taken part in, where people from different religious traditions read their texts together and find that there's always more, but also that you, we jazz on what's our own and our rapport with the others. And it's been a wonderful practice, that, for exemplifying the sort of thing that this is talking about. Yes, I, I mean, that, that we flourish in a syncopated piece. Yes, is yes. such a beautiful description. I was wondering, Michal, if you would mind um, reading um, from a section that David opens up his essay with the uh, little section from Hannah Arendt's. Yes, may, may, may I give a little context to it, perhaps? Please, please. Uh, It's coming from the fifth quintet, which is meaning. And so in the heaven section, the fifth canto of the fifth quintet, I have five people who are philosophers and theologians playing jazz together. There's five days when I'm introduced to, to each of these, and I'm introduced by five women, which I, I, I leave aside for the moment. But one of the people who speaks to me in this is Hannah Arendt. So this little excerpt which you asked me to read is, in fact, Hannah Arendt addressing me. Poet's work must always be the interface, embracing all the wonders we've amassed with gratitude, but also in the light of what we've lost or thought we had surpassed. Motifs of wisdom you with second sight will slowly begin to interweave. You won't look back to try to underwrite all loss or hanker for some make-believe in the glare of here and now to find a vision for our world you must conceive. As Dante once prepared the modern mind, you too must show a depth and breadth of view that lets the future in our now unwind. Thank you, Michal. David, you opened up your recent essay about the five quintets with this passage. Could you say a little bit about why it's 
it's got everything really, doesn't it? It was partly because it's about a poet's vocation. It's, it's got embracing all the wonders that we've amassed. It's got the gratitude for the past, the wisdom in the present, the, the vision for the world, for the future. And it's got the depth and the breadth. And and then it's got that marvellous reference to Dante as well, who really is, it seems to me, the sort of great analogue of the whole poem, the five contestants. I mean, I'd also point to the poem on Dante himself in the first quintet, which has this lovely dialogue between Michal and Dante. <laughs> I, I, I think really does in many ways go to the, the essence of what the whole thing is about. Yes. I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because um, the engagement with history in the five quintets seems to be a con- central concern of both of yours. And one point of connection here, one among many, as, you, as, you, as we begin to note, between Michal and Dante. And another obvious connection is that both deal with the question of God. And David, in your essay, you have this quite stunning line, which is, O'Shiel should be judged the more daring of the two because of how he engages with God. Neither in English language, literary culture, nor in the dominant intellectual spheres of economics, politics, the sciences, and philosophy has it been generally fashionable to walk our daring god of love's high wire, as a quote, in the way O'Shiel does in the Five Quintets. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and, and both the connection that you see between the, the projects, Dante's Divine Comedy and O'Shiel's Five Quintets, but also particularly why dealing with God here is different, what marks it, what separates it from the way in which Dante is theologizing in poet, poetic form. Well, I mean, Dante was in a culture where God was utterly part of the culture. He was emerging, you know, modernity emerging out of the Middle Ages. Whereas we are in a culture where, as I say in that article, uh, often, especially in intellectual circles, such as all of us have moved in. I've studied in Germany, in the States, in, in the UK and in Ireland. And in all of those, there's a tendency among intellectuals to be what I would call secular supersessionists. In other words, they see religion essentially as something of the past. They don't tend to look on religion as something that people as intelligent as themselves really can hold to in this period. They don't recognize that you can be at least as sophisticated philosophically, scientifically, historically, and so forth, uh, and also be somebody who is a person of intelligent faith. And so I think one of the extraordinary achievements of Mihal in this uh, book is to be a person of intelligent, wise faith, uh, and also to be utterly at home with the whole range of modernity in in all its various parts, and also to show how much of modernity is richly theological as well and richly informed by engagement with God. And I think this sense that we are in a pluralist world where there are multiple depths, there isn't just the secular, there's also many religions and many forms of secularity. And I think Mihal enables a conversation, enables anyone to engage with this range of things and also to improvise on them, as Mihal says, in relation to their own tradition while being deeply in conversation with other traditions. Yes. Mihal, I, I, I wanted to ask you about that as well, because in, in, in many ways, this, this is clearly, as David's pointing out, this is an overtly theological poem. And yet many of the characters of the historical figures who feature in the poem are out and out secularists. Um, and so why include them? 
in such a, a theologically concerned work. First of all, thank you for your kind words about the five quintets, David, and thank you for all your support uh, in being my first reader throughout the whole 10 years which I spent writing it. But back to your question, I think really that I'm trying to see, it's a taking stock, if you like, of how we got to where we are, and also suggesting, to use an echo of David's title of that article, uh, a wiser vision for the 21st century. But in order to, to discover it and take stock as to where we came from, I, I had this extraordinary insight that it seemed to be that in all of these domains, the, in, in the arts, in economics, politics, science, f- philosophy and theology, in all of these five quintets, there is an extraordinary sort of vertical unity. It seems as if they all echoed the moods or the phases which our culture was going through. And I wanted to catch that both in sort of these vertical parallels. But just to give a very simple example, for instance, John Donne and the arts, he's back and forth as to whether we go around the sun or the sun goes around us or whatever. In the equivalent, say, in economics, you're going to have Adam Smith. In science, you're going to have Copernicus. And you have these extraordinary parallels of these eras. I wanted to capture these. Inevitably, that's not just done by people who are overtly or even uh, at all, uh, in, in any sense, theologically involved. But that wasn't the point. The point was to catch the whole mood of those eras. And inevitably, that involved people who would not only be not, not um, particularly religiously uh, involved, but would be anti-religious. But that's all part of the history and all part of this movement towards how we might develop a vision for where we should go. I wonder if you could say just a little bit about what it was like imagining these conversations. What kind of research, what did you do to try to imagine what a conversation with Hannah Arendt would be like, or with Karl Marx, on issues and on questions and subjects that they might not have written anything about, or that they might have reference only in critical fashion. And you've got these sort of wonderful, constructive conversations with them about truth and the search for meaning. Well, yes, obviously they're imagined conversations, but they're based, uh, uh, often interlaced with quotations from the figure involved. How, how, How did I go about it? A lot of reading is the answer to that. I read biographies of the people. I thought about them. But I also thought it was a connection between their biography, quotations from understanding them. And particularly, I was fascinated by the childhood of most of these people because the childhood and the youth and the parents and relationships with the parents formed them so much that it was almost incredible how this echoes through their lives. But to fasten on details of that, which gave me a sort of a key to the character, but also to relate to them and how they related to my seeing the era that they were involved in. So it's a mixture of all of those things, and it becomes an imaginative conversation between the two of us. But it's also, of course, to an extent, and one can't get away from this, a judgment. In other words, I I couldn't shy away from making some sort of judgment, but though often leaving the last word to the person involved. Yes, I think if I might say that one of the intriguing things is that Michal doesn't conceal the fact that he has convictions and that he makes judgments and has thought a lot about these things. And yet everyone speaks for themselves, that you you feel you're in a genuine conversation. There's one line here that I wanted to ask both of you about and, and just to have you react in this, which you just read, which is where Hannah Arendt commends to you to Embracing all the wonders we've amassed with gratitude, but also in the light of what we've lost or what we thought we had surpassed. And here's the line. 
motifs of wisdom, you with second sight will slowly rebegin to interweave. I wonder if you could just talk about, first of all, I love rebegin as a coined term, but if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by second sight and the sort of interweaving. It's probably simpler than you may have thought, in a sense, because it means looking a second time at. You see, the point I'm trying to, I think, make here is to suggest that while embracing all the wonders we've amassed with gratitude, but also in the light of what we've lost, we lose things through history and think we have surpassed, which, of course, is David's previous point about supersessionism of a sort, intellectual supersessions, were things we think we've left behind because we, we've, we're much brighter now. We've surpassed them. It's this linear view of history. But often, I think, you need to look back at history and suddenly to realize that some of the things we thought we had surpassed we need to retrieve. There's a certain retrieval of wisdom. Um, so to get these motifs of wisdom, looking a second time, which you slowly begin to interweave again into our lives. But then there's the caveat that you don't try to do this because anything that's lost, it's bad to lose. Of course, there are things it's good to lose as well. But So you're not trying to underwrite all loss. And you're not looking for the you know hankering, which is a very common one, hankering after a past, a perfect past, which never was, of course. So hankering after some make-believe. But rather, in looking at how we are in the here and now to conceive, again, a vision for the future, but taking sometimes retrievals of wisdom from the past. Yes, I, th I think the recur, Paul recurs, uh, lovely hermeneutics of both retrieval and suspicion, but trying to make sure that the retrieval is generous and that one, one really does engage with things all over again. I mean, as a classicist, I know that just how Sophocles, for example, or Plato or Aristotle or Virgil or whoever from the classical civilization, you can just read and reread and reread. And of course, that's what I've been doing with John's Gospel for the last 20 years. And I find that every time I re-engage with it, it was not just second sight, it's third, fourth, fifth, right. up to a hundredth sight. And it, it keeps on going. It is one of the amazing things, isn't it, about the richness of deep meaning. It's very unnostalgic when you describe it like that. This is a sort of engagement, a concern with history. They're very much in service of the present and the future. I, I was wondering, actually, partly because of the nature of your different disciplines. David, you have the opportunity to reflect explicitly on Michal's poetry in essays and in books and things like that. Michal, it's obvious that David has been hugely influential in your work, but perhaps ways that are not as explicit or obvious to the casual reader. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the influence that David's work has had on your life and also the, the, the influence and the, the significance of your friendship. Yes, the two, are, of course, are extremely interwoven. It's hard to separate them because, you see, I think the greatest influence of all really is that, that it's a shared view of the world. It's developed over some 50-something years, which we've been best friends. As we've grown, we've shared everything and shared reading, shared friends. So it's a deep involvement in one another that actually is probably the, the greatest influence. And as I said, I'm awfully grateful for this because I was in academic life. I was a, a lecturer and, and had tenure in Trinity College Dublin and left. And then I was for some years a professor in the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. And again, I left that because I wanted to give my full dedication, my full life to writing poetry. But 
I could so easily have been, as I've said before, isolated. You sit, you, you get up every day and you're in your study. But David was in an environment in a top university at Cambridge where he was coming across these people and was in contact with people. But that sharing, that channel into my life, I am extraordinarily grateful. And that is probably the greatest influence. Well, if I might say, that moment when Michal resigned his professorship, uh, I remember being utterly in awe. It was 1987, I remember, <laughs> when he told me he was going to go independent as a poet and, and <laughs> make his living, that, that I just, seeing the way in which Mihol, after his professorship, was liberated to investigate in all directions and to not to be just confined to one discipline where you have to produce publications and so forth has been a very striking thing. That, in other words, I don't think that the five quintets is imaginable without him having been an independent poet with all the time to do that massive amount of reading, trying to master Einstein and Heisenberg and all those, as well as all the economists and Marcia Sand and Adam Smith and so forth, and all the politicians and all the artists and so forth. It, it's just unimaginable in academic life if Michal had stayed in academic life. And I think that risk that he took with his whole career in uh, leaving the, the, the professorship, as I said, I I was in awe at the time, and I continue to have that feeling about it. You know, uh, David, in your essay, you quote a line that Michal wrote where he writes, the desire is to know how in your complex glory we let go. And you explain, what sort of knowledge is that? It's one that, like the deepest wisdom, invites us into transformations of our perceptions and discernments, our relationships, our passions, our habits, our practices, and our ways of living. The best way to learn this is from those who embody it. They are the ones who have risked letting go in the complex glory of Madame Jazz. It strikes me, on the one hand, this applies in, in at least two levels, which is, on the one hand, is that a description of your relationship with Mihal in this? It's certainly a description of my perception of what happened to Mihal when he let go his professorship. Right. <laughs> you know, and, he, and also, actually, the, the books of poetry became more unified. Each of them seems to me to be more unified, beginning with The Chosen Garden, his autobiographical one, but each one after that. And of course, they also alternated between more personal things and more public things, the most public being his book on the Holocaust, that remarkable thing. And I, I, I remember going through this complex glory. I mean, glory in Christian terms, of course, includes the cross. And I remember the five years that Michal spent immersed in the literature of the Holocaust and also even meeting survivors and so forth and to produce the Gossamer Wall. And it, he was so taken up with all of that. We were on the phone almost every day. You know, I was in England, he was in Ireland at the time. He, he, he was so taken up with it that he had to take up something that completely absorbed him. So he took up sailing in Dublin Bay and learning to sail. And I remember the awesome feeling I had once when I was, he was took me out and I trusted him completely because I had no skill in this area. But then a very large boat, said so the, the, the mail boat, came around the corner and Michal masterfully steered us away from it. And I remember thinking the intensity and the attention that he had put into that, giving him no time to think about what 
he was working on the rest of the day and demanding complete concentration, that there was a sort of his capacity to be multiply intense, to be intense in one thing, then to be intense in another was striking. I, I think that whole engagement with the Holocaust in, in the Gossamer Wall and the final culmination, Prisoners of Hope was the name of the final one, where he looked beyond the Holocaust. Um, I think that has something very profound to say to our time today as well. Michal, do you have anything to add to that? No, except the, <laughs> this is very much a, a sort of a, a byproduct of it in a sense, but uh, they were tough years because, and in fact, my first and my late wife, Pedeeds, uh, was very worried at the time because I was reading nothing but about the Holocaust for four or five years. And I, I, she was really worried that I'd get terribly depressed. So I, the sailing was a counterpart of that. But interestingly, the next book which I was to write, which was a huge relief in some ways after The Gossamer Wall, which was the Holocaust book, uh, Poems and Witness to the Holocaust, was Love Life, which was a celebration of a marriage, which at that stage, I can't remember, it must have been 30 years or more at that stage. Uh, um, but the main imagery which I used throughout that book was actually sailing, which was, uh, uh, which I would never have anticipated, but that came out of that period of sailing, which David was describing. M might I say a footnote to that, Michal, as you have read from your poems in Love Life at the marriage of each of our daughters, but our son is getting married. And of course, because of the lockdown things that uh, Michal can't be there, they, they wanted him to read as well. But the poem, the poems they, they, they choose are always from Love Life. It's extraordinary how powerful that is. And I don't know another book that is dedicated to year after year of marriage, actually, another the book of poetry that, that that is dedicated like that. Maybe you know of some, but uh, I have found it always a source of great quotations for my wife's birthday cards. Well, it, 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 the, the, it was said uh, 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 that, that um, a good marriage was never material for poetry. I, I found it otherwise. I had 44 years of a wonderful marriage, but I, I should add, uh, thankfully, I, I now have had seven years of a second wonderful marriage. So I'm the most uh, blessed man on God's earth. I wonder if you might share uh, a reading from Love Life since it's come up. Actually, I should say that um, David gave me this when I started studying with him, a copy of your collected poems. He wrote an inscription in which he quoted the poem that I'd like you to read. And it is Covenant. Yeah, that's very apt, given the, what we've been talking about. But let me read it first, and we can talk about it afterwards. Covenant. The first moves we played by touch and feel, mutual come hither of glow and counter glow, share and share alike our seesaw deal, some subtle paralleling of a quid pro quo. Or so it seemed. But how we turn spendthrift, as already we've begun our foolish potlash, spiralling upward in endless covenants of gift. And so hopeless it becomes to try and match. Je t'aime la folie, and make no bones about my bargain. Nothing asked or sought, quits before we start, neither getter nor giver. We travel on beyond the tables and the stones. No barter, no payback, gratis for naught. I desire you, just love me now and forever. 
Wonderful. David, I'd actually like to ask you the first question about it. it was this line spiraling upward in endless covenants of gift that you wrote on the front cover of this book that you gave to me. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit what this poem means to you. Drew, giving it to you as one of my doctoral students in Cambridge, I was just savouring that extraordinary thing, which has continued ever since then too, you know, between us, that extraordinary privilege of being a doctoral supervisor to somebody, to be an advisor for a major piece of work over years when you're engaged in something really worthwhile. And also just seeing the gifts that I got, I assume you may have got one or two things from me as well. But of course, always in the doctoral relationship that the supervisor gets more, I'm afraid, because I know what a good doctorate is and I can tell you when you've got it. But I haven't done all your reading. I haven't done all your thinking. You know, you've intensively applied yourself to something year after year. The covenant, I think, is also worth just noting. It's become one of the most important words for me in my life, not least for our whole civilization, it seems to me that what I was talking about, the, the pluralism of multiple depths, that the depths need to be in conversation with each other. They need to collaborate. But above all, they need to have the sort of long term joint commitments to the flourishing of our world, to the common good. And, and it seemed to me that the sort of covenant there is between a doctoral professor and the student is also a model for all sorts of other long-term relationships where the mutuality grows and deepens and cross the generations too. One of the things my Jewish friends have taught me a great deal is how crucial unity is across the generations. And, And the more I go on in life and now have grandchildren, the more I appreciate how vital those family covenants, those friendship covenants, those institutional covenants when you found something and it goes on year after year and hopefully across the generations. The final thing I'd say about this is just those final lines, no barter, no payback, gratis for naught. I desire you just love me now and forever. I I think I was writing Christian wisdom, desiring God and learning in love at the time. And one of my most uh, moving engagements was with the Jewish philosopher and theologian Peter Oakes and grappling with his thought and with the book of Job, actually, where Job is challenged by Satan. Does he fear God for nothing? You know, that for nothing. And uh, right at the heart, it seems to me, of our relationship with God is we love God for nothing. We love because God is God. What could be more glorious than to love the one who is ultimately eminently lovable? But also, Uh, We love each other that way, I think. And we we try to image God's love in our love. And so we love each other for our own sake, not because we're useful to each other primarily, though that, of course, has often been the case with Newhall, that uh, (laughs) we have have collaborated in all sorts of things. But fundamentally, there's just this sense of no payback, gratis for naught. That's what I was hesitation to say at the beginning when I was going to read the poem and I said I'd rather you talk first was that phrase for naught because I remember I I mean I Job I'd often puzzled over but David's reading of Job really took me the idea you know that this was almost a thought experiment uh, of of sorts but the great phrase was Dorian which was for naught so that you love God not because he was good to you or bad to you or anything else, but just for his own sake. Uh, and uh, made a big impression on me that. And it was really, you must have been working on Job at the time because that phrase for naught 
that shows up in Covenant is definitely an echo of David's work on Job. I want to just go back to something, David, you were talking about the, the Jewish idea of the unity across the generations as an, an account of covenant. It strikes me that because earlier and, and throughout the five quintets, there is a, something that's outlined is a kind of unity that does not exclude disagreement or difference. And one of the things that I pick up as central in, in, in trying to understand the sort of unity that you're talking about here, and perhaps this is another apt description of covenant, is trust. There's a, a sort of trust in in God that we see in Job, independent of his sort of the events that befall him. There's a trust that, that God is good and that God is good, what wills the good for Job, even if he's not experiencing it. And I get the sense that there is trust. There's a trust that you each have for one another, that there, the other person will have something to say to you even if it's not obvious that there's a trust there that this is going to be important to you. And that's, and that, Michal, that's one of the things that I get from your engagement with all these different figures in the five quintets. There's a trust, no matter the difference, no matter the sort of the time, place, or the theology, et cetera, that this person has something of value for you and for the world. And I, I, I wonder if you could just share a little bit about how you see maybe the problem of trust today in the sort of pursuit of wisdom and why that is such an important theme for us to reflect on today. Yes, uh, everything we do is based on trust. If I go into a restaurant uh, and uh, I take food, I trust they're not poisoning me and they trust I'm going to pay for it. So the, yeah, every single act you do is in, in some ways is, is based on trust. But the, the danger, I think, and uh, one of the big dangers in our society at the moment is the is a culture of suspicion. You know, and the media play greatly into this as well, that there is a lack of trust that people mean well. You always look for the underhand motive first, which is dangerous. But for me, it's been at the heart of, of my life, uh, heart of my two marriages, at the heart of my friendships. It is trust. Without trust, you have nothing. Strangely, of course, etymologically, it's interesting, the cognates of it in other Germanic languages, it means consolation. In, in other Germanic languages as well. In Norwegian, it means consolation. It can mean the same in German. Whereas in Icelandic and English, it means trust in the sense we're using it. So trust is a huge consolation. Yes, I think, Michal, that you have a poem about that, haven't you, in tongues? That one of the things I have been continually amazed by in Michal is his facility with languages, with contemporary languages. I think about 11 or 12 of them. And uh, tongues at the end of it, tributes to the people who taught him these languages. And I've always been struck by how Michal learns languages in the context of friendships, that he actually develops deep relationships and therefore, I think, has a deep understanding of the language. But also, I'm triggered by your question about trust, Drew, uh, to reflect on two remarkable women that I've learned from uh, about trust. One is my favourite public intellectual in this country, in England, Baroness Honora O'Neill, the philosopher, who uh, for years, for eight years, I think, when we were both uh, syndics that's on the board of Cambridge University Press, we examined all the books to be published by Cambridge University Press year after year. And uh, I was so impressed by her wisdom and insight into them. But one of her books is called uh, Trust, uh, and it was her Reef Lectures in this country. And it's a wonderful 
examination of trust in the public sphere. But the other one is Susan Hyland, who's one of my favorite New Testament scholars. I was a visiting professor in Emory University at Candler Divinity School a few years ago, and uh, she's also a, a scholar of John's gospel. And she just taught me, she said, every time I come to the word pistuine, which is usually translated to believe in John's gospel. I translate it out to trust uh, and uh, to have faith in, of course, but to trust. And she said the impact on her students of always translating that just in her classes, always as trust, was quite profound. And I do feel that John's gospel has some of the most relevant lessons to us today in the area of trust. Mm. We teach a class here called uh, Life Worth Living at the Center for Faith and Culture, and we teach it for undergraduates. And we look at different religious traditions and philosophical traditions, not to try to identify the sort of discrete belief system and truth claims so much as to try to get an understanding of their sort of story of everything, the truth claims in connection with the vision of the good life, what it means to live the true life or the flourishing life, because it's a question that students are no longer encouraged to ask at many universities, including ours. So one of the things that we like to ask our guests is to describe a little bit about their vision of flourishing life, of the life worth living. So if you wouldn't mind, each of you, if you wouldn't mind just giving us a sense of what your vision of the life worth living is, and maybe feel free to bring in elements of your work that we've talked about before, syncopated peace, et cetera, things like that. But Michal, what is your vision of the life worth living? It's very simple, really, for me, I think. I've always wanted just two things. One, I think, is to be a decent human being. And by that, I mean living in loving and trusting relationships, um, both with, obviously, with my uh, spouses, but also with my friends, and, and having an attitude of love towards life generally and trust, which is perhaps a trailer for heaven. And the second thing I've wanted to do all my life is to whatever talent I have, be it big or small, uh, to bring it back, as in that parable, I felt deeply from a very early age that I had to write poetry. I want to do that as best I can, for whether it survives me or it doesn't survive me, at least that I bring the talent back, whatever it is, as best I can. I think that's all I can say, really. Thank you. David, David what's your vision of the life worth living? My goodness, what a question, Drew. It's uh, fascinating. I, I suppose I'd need to start with, you know, I am a theologian and I start with God. And I think I go back to that theme in Christian wisdom, the loving God for God's sake, that this sense that there is God at the heart of reality who is just worth rejoicing in, praising, adoring, contemplating, loving endlessly, but, and that this is the core of the reality in the universe and that one lives from that to that and it, it relates to everything else. So the first thing would be loving God for God's sake. And I suppose the second is analogously loving people for their sake too. And being just having that freedom of, and it involves all the things that Michal talked about, obviously. And then within that, I suppose it, it's what Michal talked about, his vocation as a poet, my vocation as a theologian. One of the things for Michal and myself has been this this sense of taking roads not usually taken, so to speak, that we both diverge from the expectations of where we'd be going with our degrees and so forth. And so for, for me, it's that sense of a, a life with a purpose, with a vocation, but not subordinated to that sheer delight in God and other people that, uh, or, or rather, <laughs> 
very much subordinated to it, sorry. (laughs) In other words, the primary thing is that delighting God in each other and in the whole of creation. And I suppose my ultimate image of that is what I might call an ecology of blessing, where God blesses us and God on the whole of creation. We bless God and each other and the whole of creation. And that theme of blessing just means more and more to me as life goes on. That was so wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us today. It's been such a delight to speak with you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. Indeed. Michal and I don't often have conversations like this either, so it's it's been good for us, I think. production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured poet Michal O'Shiel and theologians David Ford and Drew Collins. Production assistance by Martin Chan and Nathan Jowers. I'm Evan Rosa and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, Thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week. 